Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. I am very excited about the show that I've organized for you today. Dr. Alex McFarland is going to be joining me in just a minute. And then Dr. Timothy Mulhaus is coming on. He's written a book called Winsome Conviction, Disagreeing Without Dividing the Church. And then a full hour with Lee Strobel. So it's going to be a great day. High quality show where I'll pass the savings on to you. It's going to be great. So Alex McFarland is a regular guest on the show. As you know, he's on every other week. I'm always happy to have him on. You can go to alexmcfarland.com to learn more about Alex, his 20-plus books he's authored and all the work he's doing, his podcasts and his uh, everything he does. It's always great. Alex, welcome back to the show. Wow, Bill, I'm so honored to be on with you. Thank you. And I was just listening to your opening remarks. Please say hello to my dear friend and colleague, Lee Strobel. I didn't know you were going to have Lee on later today. Well, it is an encore performance, uh, so it's an episode that we had with him that was so spectacular, we wanted to give listeners a chance to hear it again. I mean, he is so good. He really is, and for those who may not know, uh, he was uh, Yale-educated, has a law degree from Yale and New Haven, brilliant guy. He was an atheist for a lot of years. And a journalist, award-winning journalist for the Chicago Tribune, and he looked into the evidence for Christianity, and much to his uh, surprise, he began to be convinced that Jesus must have risen from the dead, Christianity had to be true, and he didn't—he was not looking for Jesus, but yet he was so convinced that he gave his life to Christ, and of course— I'm sure many people know he wrote one of the biggest selling Christian books of all time, The Case for Christ. But, uh, Bill, Lee and I have known each other now for 20 years, and uh, in all of our Truth for New Generation conferences, he has spoken for us, oh, I don't know, maybe two dozen times. And he is tremendous. He is just one of the most wonderful Christian brothers and uh, brilliant. Um, One thing about Lee— and I know you know this, Bill. He, he's a brilliant guy, but he's so humble, isn't he? He really is. Yeah, and uh, so that that's great. And you know what? And i got to say one more Lee Strobel fact. All right, here's this guy, brilliant guy, and we were talking about being in church. And when he came to the Lord, he began to serve in church. And here's this best-selling author, brilliant apologist. And you know what he did at his church for a lot of years? <laughs> what? It, he uh, would set out the traffic cones and help direct the cars coming into the parking lot. Oh, wow. Uh, Barrington, Illinois, bitterly cold in the winter. And I thought, wow, Lee Strobel, this super apologist, you know, revered scholar, Sunday morning serving the church, working out in the parking lot. That's humility, isn't it? No, is it ever? And I love the I love the brains that come 
uh, from guys like Lee. I mean, he comes from a, a place of being an atheist. Also, Jim Wallace, Jay Warner Wallace, was also an atheist. Sure. So it is really uh, fun to hear them and their thinking as to how they process the arguments and the evidence of uh, of the of Scripture. Well, you're going to love this then. Uh, last weekend, and, and by the way, did you have a good Fourth of July, Bill? It was very nice. Thank you for asking. How was yours? Yeah, it was great. I, and I love the Fourth of July. You know, to me, Independence Day is kind of like one of the big three. I love obviously Christmas and Easter, the birth of our Lord the resurrection of Jesus, Christmas and Easter are so special. But I think tied for third place are Thanksgiving and July 4th, mm-hmm. because they're they're so key to who our, we are as a nation. But I was in Indianapolis, Indiana to speak. There was a big thing at the fairgrounds, and it was my honor to preach the gospel. Uh, well, I met a man who um, he gave me his card, and he was an astronaut. He was a physicist for NASA and one of, like, five people who has parachuted to Earth from outer space. Uh, do, you, do you remember – and there's, there's a reason I'm taking time to tell you this. You're going to love what I'm about to share with you, Bill. But do you remember there was a commercial several years ago where a guy uh, was, like – up on, I guess, the International Space Station or something, and way down below you can see that blue marble, planet Earth, and this guy parachutes from outer space down to Earth. Do you remember that commercial? I don't. Well, it's a pretty... Yeah, and that astronaut that did that was a guy named... I think his name was like Felix Bumgarner. And anyway... Another guy who has done that, there's only like five people that have parachuted from outer space to Earth, one of whom is a guy, and I've got his card right in here. I think his name is David Tanner. Uh, But we were talking about the space program, and I said, so you're a Christian? He goes, oh, yeah, you know, um, Ph.D. in physics, and he was an engineer for NASA. And uh, he said, yeah, you know, I became a Christian and not only a Christian, but I'm, I'm really a creationist, and I believe in what Genesis says about the origin of all things that God created in six days, rested on the seventh. And I said, um, how many, like in the space program, would be Christians like you? And he said, well, virtually all believe in God, and many do believe in Jesus and what the Bible says about creation. We were talking about how, you know, the creation had to have a creator and the earth is so intricate and specific that it just couldn't have happened by accident. And he said, listen, he said, uh, the guys with master's degrees might believe in Charles Darwin, but the PhDs believe in God. Hmm. (laughs) Because he said the earth, you know, couldn't have built itself. And at the microscopic level... Such organization and complexity at the macrocosmic level, the solar system and the the ordering and the fine-tuning, it's really called the anthropic principle, how this universe just seems uniquely fine-tuned to support life. Um, He said, you know, if you really, the more you get into this, the, the more compelling it is that there must be a God 
and this God has revealed himself to the human race in the, in the person of Jesus Christ. Alex, when you see somebody that says, I disagree with that, there is no God, is, do, you, do you understand that just to be complete spiritual blindness? So, well, sometimes it, it is spiritual blindness, and sometimes it's, it's willful, uh, just um, obstinance. Uh, there, you know, sometimes people they do understand that there is a God and that God has made overtures to them, but they they willfully, you know, hold God at bay and they don't want God to be real. Now, I, I think about. Um, uh, an atheist that I was talking with Gary Habermas about, um, and I'm going to, it wasn't Sam Harris. It'll come to me here in just a minute. But this guy, he said, um, I am, you know, bothered by the realization that many of the most intelligent people I know are Christians. And he said, uh, you know, I don't want the universe to be that way. You know, he said, uh, it's not that I, um, don't know. He said, I, I know, but I don't want the universe to be that way. And um, I think a lot of times it is blindness and ignorance, but a lot of times it's just willful, carnal, obstinate unbelief. Yeah. And see, that's a, that's a very scary position to be in because um, to stand before God and have known for years about Jesus and salvation, and to know to have known of our accountability to God, and then to uh, reject that. My point being, listeners, you know, don't don't leave this world in a state of unbelief. Um, it, it takes humility to come to God, doesn't it, Bill? It does. And Alex, maybe it's n- not spiritual blindness as as much as it might be just hostility to supernatural things. If I can't see it, I am not interested. That's true. That, that That's true because um, if you allow for God and a God that acts in the world, um, that really does mean that we're not in control. You know, there, there's a God who can act. I remember the guys that, forgive me, Thomas Nagel, N-A-G-E-L, Thomas Nagel, that— um, Gary Habermas has uh, interacted with, and he's um, uh, at New York University. He's an atheist, and Nagel had said, he said, quote, I want atheism to be true, and I'm made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent, well-informed people I know are religious believers. Nagel, now listen to this, very telling. He said, it isn't just that I don't believe in God, but I I hope there's no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that, end of quote. And, you know, one of the most mature things we can do is at a young age realize that the universe does not um, bend itself to our wants. You know, Uh, I don't want there to be calories in pizza, but there are. Um, So so here's the thing that I was going to say, Bill. That um, if there's a God, and he's a supernatural God who can act in the world, by definition, that means that I am not in complete control. I mean, God, not I, 
is in control. And I, I do think for a lot of people, that's a, a, a tough pill to swallow. I would agree. A, a listener named Joseph jumped in with this uh, verse from Romans, which I know you'll love, Alex, 120, for his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen since the creation of the world being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. Yeah. Yeah. Nobody is going to leave this world, stand before God and say, oh, my goodness, there was a God? Uh, I had no idea. I I did not see this coming. Yeah. No. Everybody knows. Everybody knows. I mean, now, people can dance around and give lip service and say, well, you know, what about cancer and terrorism and evil? Um, Bill, as you may recall, for the books I did, 10 Answers for Atheists and 10 Answers for Skeptics, I, I interviewed, I personally sat down one-on-one with a number of atheists, and I, um, I said, you know, disconvert me. Tell me why I should be an atheist. And... 99% of all, hundreds of questions, hundreds of, of conversations, um, over a 10-year period, I have had at least 300 one-on-one conversations with atheists, many famous atheists like Christopher Hitchens. And, Bill, 99% of all the objections come back to some form of what we call the problem of evil. Which I, I get it. I mean, that's a, a, a serious topic of conversation. And the short answer is there there are bad things in this world because it's a fallen world, mm-hmm. and we're not in heaven yet. This world, this world is not heaven. Now it's uh, through Christ the pathway to get to heaven. But a lot of the, the atheists they they fault this world for being the way it is. And they say, well, um, there's sin and sickness and tragedy and heartbreak and violence. And there are condos in Florida that fall and people die. Um, therefore, there is no God. But he, here's, here's the catch, though. Look, if there is no God, there, there's really no good or bad. There's just stuff. Good point. And yeah, I, I mean, the, the only way... And hang with me, folks. I realize this is deep, but but let's uh, Alex, the, uh, let's, let's pick up the the depth, the deepness after the break because we're up against uh, needing to take a break okay, here. Okay. So sure, if you can sure. uh, hit pause and remember exactly where you left off, uh, this will be a seamless transition when we come back. Alex McFarland is my guest. We'll take a short break and be right back. with Dr. Alex McFarland, and we're talking about his interaction with atheists, and they all seem to have a struggle with the problem of evil. And I, we had to stop, Alex, suddenly, and you had a, this really great thought. So if you can proceed from there, I would love it. Sure. Well, Bill, thanks for having me on. You're, you're so gracious. Thank and you. I just, I think you are one of the best voices out there in radio, and it's always an honor to speak with you. But uh, what I was going to say before the break was, 
you know, whenever we make a value judgment and we say this is good, that is bad, you know, um, Mother Teresa feeding the hungry, that's good. Osama bin Laden killing people, that's bad. I mean, the, the only way that we can really make a meaningful value statement like that is if there's an ultimate standard of good from which we measure. And so, and by the, by the way, interestingly, this even relates to aesthetic value judgments. I mean, when we say, you know, uh, Canon in D is beautiful, uh, heavy equipment tearing up concrete, that's noisy. Whenever we say something is good, true, or beautiful, and other things are negative, bad, and false, those kind of statements are only meaningful because there's an ultimate standard of goodness and truth and beauty from which we measure. So an atheist goes, look, bad stuff happens, therefore, I believe there is no God. But without God, our reference point from which we measure, you know, we can't legitimately say anything is good or bad. Now, what we're saying is, when I say, look, the life of Billy Graham and Mother Teresa, that was good. The life of Adolf Hitler and Osama bin Laden, that is bad. Uh, what I'm really saying is the life of a Billy Graham conforms more closely to an ultimate standard of good than does the life of a terrorist or something like that. And when, when the atheist says, you know, there is no such thing as God, then what we're really – I'm like, really? Do you really want a, a universe in which uh, uh, a Charles Manson is is no different than a Mother Teresa? Because that's really what you've got. Uh, but I think a lot of people don't realize in their glib dismissal of God, they're really reducing this world to a place where there is no right and wrong. Yeah, Alex, when you were interacting with atheists, did you find them to be almost disproportionately mad at God? Seems oh, that absolutely. atheists are mad at God. I'm thinking, well, if there is no God, how can you be so mad at him? Yeah, and and you know, my heart really goes out to a lot of these guys because a lot of them um they were very vocal in their rejection of God, but yet they were angry at God. They were they were mad at the God they said they didn't believe in, and in it, one computer professor that I talked to, and I, I said, "Do you hope that your view is true?" I said, "Look, um, I I don't deny that life can be hard. I don't deny that in this fallen world there can be sadness and tragedy." Uh, but there is an answer. There's salvation, and there's Jesus, and there's there's the one who said, "Behold, one day I will make all things brand new." And in your view, uh, and he had a picture of his grandmother who had raised him, who he loved dearly. And I said, uh, you know, in 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 your view, though, this beloved grandmother, you will never see her again, and and you both die and simply become worm food. Uh, do you hope your view is true? And he said to me, he said, no. I said, he said, I, I hope your view is true. And I said, well, good news. 
<laughs> uh, it is true, you know. But yeah, I, I think, like you said, Bill, there's a disproportionately high amount of emotional, um, sometimes even rage at the God they say doesn't exist. So clearly, um, like like Romans, the, the the verse you just quoted, people know. And, and I, Bill, I would say to every one of your listeners, I, I know, look, through this life, we, we can collect a lot of baggage and wounds and scars, but the, the solution is not to hold God at arm's length, as hard as it might be, to humble ourselves and say, Lord, I need you. I really do need you. And, uh, you know, we often say that Jesus is as close by as a prayer and he really is. Mm-hmm. And so uh, turn to the one that loves you supremely and can really, truly change your life. And, uh, you know, Nietzsche, Friedrich Nietzsche, the, the atheist, they, they said on his deathbed that he was crying out. He said, the days are intolerable. I have no hope. He said, return to me, O three-personed God. Wow. Isn't that amazing? That's amazing. Um, yeah, because um, despite all the bravado and the swagger, I don't need God. There is no God. Uh, deep in our heart, we were made to have a relationship with God. And mm. so, uh, you know, the wisest thing you'll ever do is to humble yourself and turn to the God who I suspect is calling out to you even right this minute. And Alex, I know you've probably heard this before. Blaise Pascal said, basically, everyone is making a high-stakes life commitment to a particular faith view, and they're betting their eternal destiny on it. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's funny, Pascal, brilliant French mathematician, he, he wrote Apology for the Christian Religion for his sister Caroline. He was hoping to persuade of Christianity. And by apology, it wasn't like, I'm sorry. It wasn't a mea culpa like that. It was a defense of the Christian religion. And um, one one thing that I think was interesting, he was reading Jeremiah 29, 11 through 13, that says, uh, I know the thoughts I think towards you, thoughts of good, not of evil. And Jeremiah 29, 13 says, you will search and you will seek and you will find me when you search with all your heart. And Pascal, a very logical guy, he wrote this, um, a syllogism, you know, point A, point B, therefore C. Now, Bill, I know we're short on time, we're but I want to give you Pascal's. Yeah, we're out of time, oh, but make it quick, please. Are we really? Yeah. Okay. Well, you. I'll save Pascal for next time. How about that? That would be nice because I want to hear this complete thought, and I don't want to feel so pressured right now, but uh, that is the way it is when I talk to you, Alex. Time flies by. Well, praise God. Hey, folks, go to church on Sunday, tell somebody about Jesus, and please know, Bill, how grateful I am for your friendship. (laughs) Keeping it simple. Dr. Alex McFarland has been my guest. You can go to alexmcfarland.com. Take a break, and when we come back, Dr. Timothy Muehlhoff will be talking about his book, Winsome Conviction. Be right back.
how good are we at listening? I think that's getting to be more and more important as we are talking to people and sharing our faith and uh, learning how to communicate better because we're not doing that very well. I'm so glad to have Dr. Tim Mulhoff as my guest. He is the professor of communication at Biola University, and he's also co-director of the Winsome Conviction Project. He's the author of many books. I've read several of them, and I love them all. But the one that we're going to chat about today is called Winsome Conviction, and he is uh, on our studio line right now. Tim, welcome. Thanks, Bill. Glad to be with you again. Yeah, I always look forward to it. Um, This whole idea of having... the capacity to sit and listen to somebody is really challenging in this world today. Well, we're losing the ability, Bill. Think about it. When as a country, we need to talk about immigration, um, sexuality, gender, yes. uh, critical race theory. We're losing the ability to sit down with a person that we disagree with and have a good, productive conversation. And I think there's a tipping point that's happening in our country, Uh, 98% of Americans, think about that, Bill, when we can't agree on anything, 98% of us believe that incivility is a threat to our country, while 67% believe that we're at crisis levels of incivility. So I think the church can offer a difference. Wow. Tim, talk about the idea of prejudgment. What does that mean? Well, prejudgment means heading into the conversation. I've already made a judgment of your perspective. Uh, now, what I yeah, <laughs> that's not helpful. That. <clears throat> well, yeah, based on labels mostly, and where our news sources are coming from, or we do a whole chapter on is your small group an echo chamber mm-hmm. where you just share negative ideas about the other side, and that other side could be political, theological. So, if your group just constantly says. Critical race theory is one of the greatest threats to the church. We ought to ban it. I don't understand how anybody can adopt those kind of Marxist beliefs. And and that's all your group talks about is the negative aspects of critical race theory or somebody from a different political party. Then you have a conversation with a person who says, hey, I've been reading about critical race theory. I kind of like it. Well, they get bombarded by what your group has been saying, and now you just list the 15 things that your group has agreed on is negative about critical race theory, you're not listening anymore. You co-opted the talk stage, and now you're giving your rebuttal, not to that person, but to the idea of critical race theory, and listening has been thrown out the window. Mm-hmm. And we oftentimes, as Christians, assume that those of us who are sitting around us are sharing our beliefs. Not always the case. Well, the first book we wrote in this series was called Winsome Persuasion, mm-hmm. uh, Christian Influence in a Post-Christian World. Well, it's easier to talk, Bill, to somebody outside the Christian community. It's easier to talk to a non-Christian because I don't assume you hold my values. Right. So th- then when I sit down with somebody in the pew and they pull out this trump card, Bill, this is a beautiful trump card among Christians. Well, clearly the Bible says this. And you're like, hey, listen, it one, it does not say that. It actually says the exact opposite <laughs> of what you think. It, now you look at each other like, have you lost, uh, do you not read the Bible? <laughs> and that gets us off on so many tangents and the feelings are hurt. We start to question each other's fidelity to Jesus. And then the communication climate starts to become rocky. Yeah, Tim, I was listening to your Winsome Conviction podcast, which is wonderful, by the way. 
And, thank you. Yeah, you were talking. Uh, is it Richard Langer that you co-wrote this? Yeah, Rick, Rick Langer, Rick Langer. my co-author and yes. co-podcast host. Yeah. yeah, and you made you made a point which kind of jumped off uh, for me, which was we oftentimes just now trade conclusions with each other. Oh, I wish that was mine. I wish it was mine, but that's the Harbor Negotiation Project. Yeah. Okay. That that, that says the now. Listen, when the Harbor Negotiation Project says this is the biggest mistake we make. You just pay attention. And they said <laughs> it is that, yeah, it's that we sit down and trade conclusions with each other. We don't share how we arrived at the conclusion. Yes. thought that was very interesting. Oh, and the backstory is so important to get. Like, how did you arrive at these convictions? What books have you read, movies? Uh, what um, YouTube videos are you watching? What has informed your perspective? What's been your journey? And then where do we agree with each other? Like, like we both could agree that race is important, like, right? right? As, as a church, we got to deal with race. But now the question is, should we use critical race theory? Well, well, that's great that we established the fact that we both care about race and that the church ought to be active. We're just asking, should we use this one theoretical tool to help us do what we both agree God wants us to do. That's a much better place than just starting by disagreeing about critical race theory. Mm -hmm. In your book, uh, Winsome Conviction, Disagreeing Without Dividing the Church, Dr. Tim Muehlhoff is my guest, of course, and I know you guys are giving uh, some great counsel and encouragement as to how to have disagreements uh, with one another in a productive way. Well, um, pastors are at their wits' end, though. I mean, coming off of a year of COVID. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah, and then before that was, of course, the murder of George Floyd. Right. Uh, Black Lives Matter. The, the election hasn't gone away. People are still angry about the election. Um, and so add all of that, and now let's come together and try to worship together when some of our people will wear a mask, some won't. Some think it's a conspiracy. So pastors are approaching us and saying, we, we need help on our communication climate, and we need help on how to actually have these conversations. Because if you don't have them, Bill, then it's called latent conflict. It's been pushed under the surface, but it has not gone anywhere, and it's actually ruining all of our conversations because of our, our where we started this interview, because of my attitude towards you is bleeding into the conversation. Wow. In, you, you say in the book, the goal of our uh, convictions is to guide our own conduct so that it is pleasing to Jesus, not to guide the conduct, the conduct of others. Well, this is where we're calling people back to spiritual formation. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, do, I do martial arts, Bill, um, and there's a saying from the founder of karate, spirit precedes technique, which means you have to have the warrior spirit before you can punch kick. Well, we've adopted that and said we need the Holy Spirit before we get to uh, conflict resolution techniques. So I need to do what Jesus wants me to do, right? What does Peter say? Peter says, I want you not to give insult for insult. That's 1 Peter 3, 9. I want you to give a blessing instead. Now, listen, Jesus is telling me to do that. Now, I may look at the other person and say, dude, you need to be doing this. But Jesus is saying, hey, I'm working on you and I will use your kindness to work on that other person. But you need to do what you need to be a peacemaker, not a, a troublemaker. And, and I will deal with the other person, but I'm probably going to use your good conduct 
to to uh, convict them and to be an example to them. And that is so unsatisfying, Bill. It is so (laughs) unsatisfying Mm -hmm. to do that, right? Yeah. You talk about Christians, however, share a commitment to the authority of Scripture and therefore should share the same absolutes. Since convictions are about absolutes, we all share the same absolutes. All Christians should share the same convictions. So uh, we are still going to have disagreements and different perspectives, and how do we navigate our way through things that we should all share as absolutes? Well, we're borrowing from C.S. Lewis's brilliant metaphor of the hallway of faith Mm -hmm. and then rooms off to the side of the hallway. So I think as an evangelical, uh, we can have confessional beliefs, like uh, Jesus is Lord, salvation is found in Christ alone, Jesus rose bodily from the grave. That's the hallway, and we want to keep the hallway really narrow. Now, rooms off the hallway would be, to me, theological things like, are you a Calvinist or an Arminian? Do you believe God micromanages life, or do you believe that he gives us free will and we're kind of... We can do things that are against his will. Are you an egalitarian or a complementarian, right? Do you believe that the man is the head of the marriage spiritually, or do you believe that they're co-leaders of the marriage? To me, those are rooms off the hallway that there's going to be disagreements about. So let's focus on the hallway and then give charity and intellectual humility to the disagreements we're for sure going to have, like the age of the earth. Can a Christian be a theistic evolutionist? Can he believe that God used evolution, right? Now, Bill, here's what people do. They're not satisfied with that whatsoever because my room is incredibly important, and I want to make it the hallway. <laughs> so then what we do is we weaponize our beliefs. So here, here's one example we use in the book. So, in a gal- so a complementarian who believes that the man is the spiritual head of the marriage and, women, and, and a wife would lovingly submit – They say, do you believe the Trinity is part of the hallway? And I'll say, yes, I I think the Trinity is part of the hallway. Well, egalitarians, by the way that they um, apply the Bible, are undermining the Trinity. See how they see the move they just made? I'm going to attach my room to something in the hallway. Thus, you are wrong if you're an egalitarian. Mm. We call that weaponizing a belief. Okay. And so uh, let me give you another example. If you were to say, are you pro-life? Is being pro-life the hallway? I would say, yes, I believe it's the hallway. Fine. You cannot be a Democrat. Mm. You cannot be a Democrat because, see what I mean? I took a room off the hallway where we can disagree about politics, and I now tried to link it to somebody in the, something in the hallway. That's where we're having a breakdown, Bill, is having charitable Christian conversations about rooms off the hallway. Yeah, interesting, Tim. Um, you say in the book there's uh, some common beliefs about having strong convictions. I know you can name at least three. Uh, give me a little bit more on that because it's co-written. So this could be Rick Langer territory. Yeah. Um, well, there is just about if you're going to have strong convictions, um you're going to be dealing with um, certain principles, and there's going to be some common beliefs. And I was throwing the line out, hoping that you would uh, understand what Bobber is in the water right now. 
Yeah, so let me let me add from a communication standpoint what I think Rick is trying to get. Rick's okay. a theologian and a former pastor. So heading into this conversation, there's just a certain things I have to have done before I get there. One, I have to know my conviction. Is it rooted in Scripture? Mm-hmm. But secondly, is there an opposing view to this? You see, this is what we come across in some churches and even at Biola, Biola University. A person will know his or her conviction inside and out, but they've not read outside of that perspective. So I've not read uh, people who believe the earth is billions of years old because I'm a young earth person. So I know my position, and I only read theologians or scientists who subscribe to my position. So when you and I get into a conversation— I better have been well-read. Yeah, now, no I don't kidding. need to agree with the things that I read, but I, I need to at least know the perspective. And here's one other question I'm going to throw into the mix that people won't like. Is it possible you're wrong in your position? If you've never read the other side, Bill, if I've never considered the other side, how do I know I'm right? Does great, that make sense? Uh, it's a great question. I've often said, uh, if you want to be a person of influence, are you willing to be influenced? Oh, I love that. Oh, that's really good. Or are you just so set in your ways that you've come to your conclusions, you ain't budging from them, and you're not going to look at any other perspectives? That's a difficult place to be. And Bill, wouldn't you agree that in today's argument culture, that really describes where we're at today? I think so, that, yeah. That, yeah, I'm rooted. And here's what makes it harder when you're a Christian. This is my biblical conviction, and I will not move off of what God's Word says. I'm not moving one inch off of what God's Holy Word right. says. And I want to say, hey, good for you, but you'd have to be pretty closeted not to know that there's a massive disagreement about what Romans 9, 10, and 11 means. I mean, you know, there's a great series that's put out uh, called the Four Views series, and it's so frustrating to read. Are you familiar with this series, Bill, the Four I'm Views? Not, I'm not, I wish I was. Yeah, so I think InterVarsity puts a version of this out. So they take an issue, let's say Young Earth, okay? They'll take four theologians or four Christian scientists. One will say, absolutely, it's Young Earth. One will say, there's no way, in, there's no way it's Young Earth. The two middle ones are more nuanced than that. Mm-hmm. So every time one states their opinion, the three comment. Now, here's what's so frustrating and beautiful about this series. I have my students read these. So, Bill, when they're done, they're like, well, I have, I have no idea what to believe because everybody made sense. Everybody went to the Greek. Everybody produced data. Everybody was articulate, and I'm sitting there now thinking, I have no idea what to believe. And we hate that ambiguity. We hate it. Mm -hmm. So I would just simply say, don't be discouraged. These are all godly men and women who have studied this. I think it shows that there's some flexibility in this particular issue because you've got really committed Christ followers who are arguing different positions. I think that ought to give us just a little bit of comfort that most issues are not very um, simple and cut and dry unless we're talking about the hallway. Mm -hmm. But we're not, young earth is not the hallway. Now, some of your listeners are probably pulling their hair out right now (laughs) because they're saying young earth is the hallway because then, and I want to be charitable, they'll say, okay, if it's not young earth, then we have to 
reinterpret what the Bible is saying to us, and we can no longer trust the Bible. And I'm saying, no, we can trust the Bible, but just know it's complex enough that men and women, godly men and women, can interpret it in different ways and feel affirmed by the Holy Spirit and affirmed by their study. And that is, when I was in seminary, that's what my systematics prof said, that is the mystery of theology. Mm-hmm. Tim, let me take a short break. Dr. Tim Muehlhoff is my guest. He's written a book called Winsome Conviction, Disagreeing Without Dividing the Church. We'll be back after a short break. the show. Dr. Tim Muehlhoff is my guest today. He's professor of communication at Biola University, and he's also co-director of the Winsome Conviction Project. Uh, Tim, right before we went to break, uh, you know, we were talking about um, what context for me when I read a piece of scripture, maybe I've even memorized it 25 years ago, but Hebrews 4.12 says the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. And sometimes 25 years later, I get fresh insight to a passage, and then I learn exactly what the passage means. And maybe for 25 years, I didn't quite have it right. Has that ever happened to you? <laughs> oh, never, Bill. Okay, never. Good. I feel so bad for you. Like, <laughs> what, what's going on with you? <laughs> All right, so let me, let me give you an illustration. So I'm an uh, author with InterVarsity Press, okay? So they, they periodically send us books. So here's a, I literally have it in my hand, Bill. Here's what it's called. I changed my mind about evolution. Evangelicals reflect on faith and science. Mm. Okay, so I get the book. Now, Biola University is unapologetically, we do not subscribe to theistic evolution. Okay, um, so we just don't do that. You could not teach at Biola University if you believe that God used evolution, right? We, we make no apologies about that, right? Okay. So the book comes across my desk. I open it and I go, oh, well, they're wrong. Right, they're wrong. Even though you read who's who's in the book, it's who's who of Christian. It's James K. A. Smith, uh, oh, Scott wow. McKnight, um, Temper Longman the Third, Francis Collins, and I look at it. Right, a former theater major, a PhD in communication, and Bill, I look at it and go, nope, and I just throw it on my desk. Mm-hmm. Nope, I've never read <laughs> Bill. I've never read a word of it, and yet I'm absolutely convinced they're wrong because of my position. Right. That's what I'm talking about. I should be able to read that book. Now, listen, maybe if the book was convincing, maybe I go back and have to reinterpret Genesis 1 to 3, and maybe I can't teach at Biola University anymore, right? Because if I change my mind about that issue, I have to sign a doctoral statement every year. I'm not going to be able to teach at this institution. So here's what Biola does that is good. We're not saying you can't be a theistic evolutionist. We're just saying in our community, this is what we believe, and we're not going to back away from it. So you can't teach here, but let's be charitable to the people who believe something different, because the names I just read, these are people with impeccable 
credentials as evangelicals. Now, can we disagree on this issue? Yeah. I'm reading uh, James K.A. Smith's book on Augustine on the Road. Yes. It is brilliant. Oh, Bill. I've had him on. I've had him on the show talking about it. Isn't it? It is an amazing. It's one of my top books of the last, easily last five years. Yeah, it's very interesting. So guess what? We can agree on Augustine. We're going to disagree on this issue. But let's still have fellowship with each other, and let's pursue the hallway, right? That's the kind of tension I think we're just going to have to live with inside our church, inside our small groups, and inside a Christian university like Biola. But people don't like that tension. Yeah. And Jesus says, beware of false teachers. So how do we use our discernment to know what's true and what's false? Well, I think uh, we have to first use good Bible study methods to determine what the hallway is. Right? Okay. These are our confessional beliefs. This is what it means to be evangelical, right? So let me be clear. I'm picking on a hallway that is clearly evangelical, right? I may have some brothers and sisters who believe the Bible is inspired but not inerrant. It may have some mistakes along the way, okay? Again, you're not teaching at Biola University with that belief, but let me not attack you, and let me still say that you're my brother and sister in Christ. Mm-hmm. Man, Bill, that is a dance we, don't, we are not doing a good job at. We're just, and you know who, who does a really nice job of this is Tim Keller. In a, a few of his books, he's been very charitable to people that he disagrees with, but leaves room that both can be in the camp of being an evangelical Christian. Don't we want to try to build as many bridges as we can to not only our brothers and sisters in Christ, but the lost world? Well, this is why I think those two books are a good tandem mm-hmm. uh, with some persuasion and with some conviction. Because, Bill, I'm gonna, so let me say something quite controversial, maybe. You have to be pretty insulated to really have such passionate intramural disagreements. But when you realize the threat that the church is facing today, like, listen, I'm not going to let's not get political. President Biden never hid what his agenda was going to be. He always had a problem with religious freedom to a certain extent and has always been pro LGBTQ. That should not surprise any of us. And his vice president is from California. We know a lot about her. So now the Equality Act is coming to the doorstep of of conservative Christian universities like Biola, Westmont, Wheaton, uh, Azusa. And now there's a lawsuit they're going after Cal Baptist and other universities because you cannot deny a person their preferred gender. You cannot say to a person, well, you have to live in the female dormitory because your birth certificate says that you're female. This lawsuit is saying you are discriminating based on sex and you cannot do that. So guess what? We're going to be in a lawsuit that is most likely going to go to the Supreme Court. When you realize how real the threats are, to our very existence of Biola University, I hope, Bill, we would set aside these intramural conversations, as important as they are, because we have a real threat that's coming to our doorstep that threatens the very existence of a, of a conservative school like Biola University. We better get, we better be rowing in the same direction when we meet this external threat, and that's the danger of us not rowing in the same direction because we're so passionate about these rooms off the hallway, we're forgetting that there's a very real threat that wants to stamp out our existence. Mm -hmm. 
we're listener supported here, uh, Tim. We've been around 73 years. But mm. at what point do protesters show up in front of our doors saying the biblical convictions we have is hate speech? Oh, it's coming, Bill. It, it almost hit us uh, before the election. Uh, first, President Trump, when he was first elected, there was a bill called Senate Bill 1136, I think it was, mm-hmm. that was going through Sacramento, and was, and we were going to have a legal challenge on that, saying a person can choose their own gender identity, and you cannot disagree with it, right? Mm-hmm. Well, we were ready for the fight, and then President Trump got elected, and the um, people that were pushing the bill now felt that there was a greater threat than just conservative Christian schools, but now— President Trump, we dodged the bullet briefly. But now with the Equality Act, Bill, I think this is going to have an effect on the church, on Christian organizations like Faith Radio and Biola. It's going to be a willowing of the American church. Mm-hmm. A lot, we're kind of fat right now with people who are like, yeah, I'm a, yeah, I'm a, I'm a Christian. I'm a cons- sure, sure, put me <laughs> down, because it doesn't cost them anything. Yeah. Now, if it's going to cost you something— Now we're going to see a willowing of the church, and maybe at the end of the day, we're going to be this lean, mean um, community that, hey, listen, I I can trust the person to the left and to my right. We're taking the shot because we're in this position. But when we we fight back, I hate using that phrase, we better do it in a way that's winsome and Christ-like. I agree. Tim, thanks so much for doing the show. It's been a delight. You bet. Thank you, Bill. I always enjoy being with you. My guest has been Dr. Tim Muehlhoff, and his book is Winsome Conviction, Disagreeing Without Dividing the Church. We'll take a short break, and we'll be right back with lots more. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.